Welcome to PSQH, the podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talk to Dr. Rhonda Collins, Chief Nursing Officer of OSERA, about clinician safety and cognitive overload during the COVID-19 pandemic. This episode is sponsored by Vocera. And now, on to the interview. Hi, this is Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. I'm joined today by Rhonda Collins, who's a Chief Nursing Officer at Vocera. Welcome, Rhonda. Hi, Jay. Nice to be here. Thank you. Thank you. And today we're going to talk about uh, sort of the impact of healthcare violence and cognitive overload on frontline workers. Um, and I guess, uh, you know, before we kind of jump into that, um, why don't you tell us a little bit about sort of what you do with Vocera? Okay. I am the chief nursing officer with Vocera, and basically my role involves um, working with nurse executives and nurse leaders all over the world, actually, to determine how do we integrate technology into the patient care environment? How do we mitigate the issues associated with various generations of nurses learning to use technology to care for patients? And, and how do we leverage, you know, what we do at Vocera, which is enable urgent communications um, without having to know names or numbers and uh, wearables, um, use, utilizing wearables for voice communication right from the bedside. And especially during COVID, it's been quite an active conversation. So uh, my role is to lead clinicians across the organization as we assist hospitals and clinics in um, accomplishing their goals. That's great. Um, well, I guess, you know, prior to COVID-19, workplace violence was already a huge problem in healthcare. You know, what, what are some of your thoughts on it um, even before, you know, we hit a pandemic? Oh, absolutely. Um, workplace violence in healthcare is an epidemic. Um, just some quick, quick statistics for you. One in four nurses have been assaulted while on the job. Seven in 10 ER nurses report being kicked or hit on the job. Um, and 76% of nurses experience violence, including verbal or physical abuse, or both. Um, and I think there are probably uh, a couple of statistics that are more sobering even is that workplace violence is four times more likely to happen in hospitals. And 80% of workplace violence incidents affecting nurses go unreported. And one of the reasons for that, yeah, I mean, one of the reasons for that is, frankly, our culture, you know, we're, we are educated and we're trained, we're in nursing because we want to care for people. And it goes a bit against our, um, our training uh, to consider the patient to be our adversary. Mm -hmm. um, we're, we're taking care of them, we're trying to care for them. And so um, I think it is a journey that we are on in nursing to understand that workplace violence does not come with the territory. It should never be accepted. I, I can't think of any other job anywhere where we would just say that comes with the territory <laughs> to have someone um, pulling weapons or being violent against you or hitting or kicking or swearing, or all of those things that happen. Um, and, and it does, rely on leadership, being aggressive about leading to solve for the concern and um, looking at how do we affect our culture, how do we redesign patient flow, or how quickly we can get patients through the system and our policies and protocols, and sometimes protocols are not enough. So what we have to do is look for 
ways that we can use technology or we can use um, certain devices to help us uh, call for help when we need it. And that's what we have done. We've worked with nurses all across the country to get their feedback on design with our smart badge that has a dedicated button that allows nurses to call for help in the urgent moment um, when they need it. That was a lot of information, but yeah. there you go. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Um, and I guess, you know, prior to COVID, were you seeing progress being made uh, sort of in changing those attitudes about workplace violence in healthcare? It, it's an early and I, I would say frequently uh, uncomfortable conversation. It's the elephant in the room and we all want to address it, but how do we address it without disenfranchising the people that we care for? So, um, it, and obviously COVID has really accelerated it because families and patients are separated the minute they come to the hospital. Um, you have people who have wait times without any kind of information about their loved one. Um, and so when you factor in drug addiction, uh, alcohol addiction, mental illness, and um, you know, all of the isolation that's been going on, everything is just exacerbated. It's just worse. And so when I talk to nurse executives across the country, they say, you know, we're just overrun with the issues that have to do with addiction and mental illness and the accompanying violence. Um, and we're always working to determine how do we quickly get patients through our system so we can um, protect our, our nurses and our physicians and our other healthcare workers. Um, have you seen, you know, obviously, you know, we've been in this pandemic for, I guess, eight, <laughs> eight months now, um, you know, A have, while. <laughs> yeah, have you seen like some good progress being made in terms of, you know, dealing with those issues, you know, the, obviously, you know, you, you drop off a family mm -hmm. member, you can't necessarily, you know, normally you would accompany them maybe to their appointments. Right. Now you can't, you know, have, have some facilities been able to kind of, you know, uh, deal with that and, 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 you know, bridge those, you know, those gaps to, you know, I guess, uh, stave off, yeah. you know, the possibility of violence. Yes. You know, the backbone of what we do is communication in healthcare. I mean, we, we talk to our patients, we talk to all the care providers, we talk to the families, we, you know, we discover what's going on with the patient through communication. And I think what we realize is that we really have to increase the level of communication and very clear communication and timely conversations. And um, so I've, I've worked with many hospitals where um, either through the use of technology or the use of protocol or both, they have streamlined that process. So we're making sure that we pull in the family using um, that based solutions where the nurse or the physician can push out information to say, I just looked at your grandfather, Joe, and he's doing very well. And here's a picture, you know, we can uh, create teams where it doesn't require multiple phone calls and we can just activate uh, a COVID response team, or we can activate, you know, an urgent stroke team in the middle of all of this pandemic and craziness. So, what we have seen is that hospitals are really doing extraordinary operational acts and communication acts and using technology to support the operational 
aspects of it. And so Bozera is able to quickly create software solutions. So with changing staff, you don't have to know the name. You can just say, call the respiratory therapist on call, and that person gets the message instantly. Um, we have the wearables that can be worn under the PPE to streamline that time. Um, so uh, nurses and physicians don't have to be donning and doffing that PPE and risking exposure, um, but they can still communicate with families and the patient and uh, all of the folks involved in this uh, very uncomfortable experience that we're going through. As far as workplace violence, I can say that many nursing organizations are focusing on that in the coming year for their platform. Um, for discussion, both state by state and nationally. The American Nurse Association has been focused on it for the last year and will continue that. And let's talk about cognitive overload. Um, you know, explain what that is and how it's how it's been exacerbated over the last several months. Yeah, it's um, it sounds like two disparate conversations, but they actually go together. Um, we can look at before the coronavirus pandemic, um, healthcare workers faced a number of challenges that caused stress, emotional exhaustion, and cognitive overload. And just so you can understand what cognitive burden is or cognitive overload, it's the total amount of mental activity imposed, imposed on your working memory in any one instant. Right now, you and I both have a, a a higher level of cognitive burden because we're, we're listening carefully, we're staying engaged, we're trying to make sure that we answer the questions appropriately. Um, and your working memory is actually the ability to remember and use relevant information while in the middle of an activity uh, or multiple activities, whatever is going on. Uh, you think about clinicians in the workplace and the high level of cognitive acuity that they have to have um, managing all of the different signs and symptoms of COVID, still managing all the different patients and protocols and necessities of their work environment. Plus, everybody comes to work with their own personal experience at home, which obviously, if you look at um, nursing as a female-dominated profession, we're changing that and we're very proud of that. But um, if you look at it, they're responsible for you know children who are in remote learning at home, and sometimes aging parents or, or spouse that they're having to share a home office with, all of those right. things yeah. that go with the experience. Or you may have heard my dogs barking a few minutes ago. <laughs> I, I have to share my dogs barking with every experience or every uh, work experience I have. But the, the science of cognitive burden actually comes from education, trying to understand why you and I or maybe 50 other students can sit in a classroom, hear the exact same information presented in the exact same format uh, with the exact same notes, but some, a certain percentage will fail the class, a certain percentage will get A's and a certain percentage will get B's, et cetera. Um, so they were trying to understand when we have a cognitive load, how does it set us up for mistakes, which is really interesting for um, the healthcare profession because that, you know, this is a, a zero-sum profession when it comes to mistakes. We, right. we want to avoid that at all costs. There's eight core cognitive capacities. One is your ability to sustain attention or stay focused on a task for an extended period of time. Your response inhibition are the ability to shut out distractions. Uh, some of us are really good at just closing out the world while we work, others not so much. Uh, how quickly you process information 
um, that's just how quickly we can process written or spoken information. So you and I are having to do that very quickly right now because you ask me a question and I respond or I make a statement and you follow up. We're having to stay very engaged and, and processing information. And then there's cognitive flexibility and control, which is the ability to switch between thoughts and bring that together. Multi, multiple simultaneous attention is the ability to switch attention between activities or basically we call it multitasking. And, and your working memory or your ability to remember and use relevant information, how you form categories of information, and then how you recognize patterns in information. So when I look at that and I try to understand the context of cognitive burden, there's three factors I have to bring in. One is intrinsic, which is what I just said about us all carrying our, our I call it the backpack you can't take off. It's, you know, mm -hmm. you have a special needs child or you have an aging parent or you're having to work from home and you're worried about the dogs barking or you're, you know, there's financial concerns and there's all of those things that just, that's just what you bring to any given situation. You know, it goes with you wherever you go. And then extrinsic cognitive burden is what the environment delivers. There's days as a, as a nurse, I could show up and it would be a quiet entry into the day. I could organize my thoughts and order my day. There's other days that I would show up that I would have every single room full. I would be, everyone would have an urgent need. I had patients going to surgery. I had patients with critical lab values and I've got to be able to balance that. Now with my personal cognitive burden, my, my intrinsic is high. It's gonna make it very hard for me to remember what I need to remember. And then the germane is just how you make sense of it all. You know, your personal capabilities on how you manage that. So. That that was a three minute uh, download and overview of cognitive burden. <laughs> you should be good to go now. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, well, also I guess add in you know lack of sleep. You know if you're you know oh, working on a you know a crazy long shift or if you didn't get a lot of sleep yeah. the night before for whatever reason, and just the exactly right. the pressure of the situation dealing with you know healthcare in a pandemic. I mean that just I guess that sort of part of what you talked about, but that just adds to, you know, the, the pressure on an individual, um, it does. In particular it, situation it absolutely well. does. Yep. And you know, you look at right now folks working and caring for COVID patients, and then they're worried about going home to their family, or we've seen pictures in the media of parents talking to their small children through a door mm -hmm. because they can't come in and pick them up. They have to change their clothes and shower some, some, family members are living off-site or away from home because they um, they don't want to expose their family or they they have a fragile person living in their home and they don't want them to have exposure to the the virus I mean cognitive overload is a cause of 80 percent of all medical device errors um, by users and it's just folks who are overloaded with information or tasks or they come to work that day is significantly burdened or they're they're burdened about what's going to happen at the end of the day and um, some of the signs of cognitive burden that you can recognize in people are forgetfulness um, committing errors or just forgetting thing an error of omission i just forgot what was going on stress sleep disturbance like you said anxiety and agitation moodiness irritability feeling angry or overwhelmed and then it can go all the way into full-blown depression if it's not addressed, which is, 
you know, really what I do is having studied this and focused on this is looking for ways I can use um, the technology that we have at Bocera to, to alleviate that burden or just reduce the wear and tear on clinicians. <laughs> I mean, basically, and so if you can find something that can carry the burden of memory, so I don't have to remember um, where that next lab value is coming from. I don't have to remember when someone needs to go to surgery. I don't have to remember a set of vital signs. It can all be stored in uh, either my smartphone or on my wearable smart badge. So those are the kinds of things that we look at to reduce that. Yeah, and I, you know, I imagine it's a, you know, with everything else going on, you know, it's probably, I want to say easy, but, you know, it can be easy to overlook, you know, how this is oh, affecting yeah. the caregiver. So, um, absolutely. Yeah, that's, that is absolutely true. And so when I talk to caregivers, they're like, it, it, it's just, um, when it first started in New York city, I was talking to some nurse executives over there and, and they had basically gone to, uh, one of the department stores and bought those shoe, um, holders that, <laughs> you hang over the back of a closet door mm -hmm. and each nurse was assigned a pocket and they were putting their masks and their goggles and all that because we were so short on PPE and they were having to reuse PPE. So there's the concern of having to reuse and having to clean. And of course that's still going on. We have places all across the United States that are still surging, um, right. that are still having to open up separate COVID hospitals. Um, I was just talking to a hospital in North Carolina that has done that. They've reopened one of their older hospitals and turned it into the COVID hospital, if you will. And there's a lot of reasons for doing that. Um, one of them is, you know, of course, to isolate the patients more, but also for the staff. So you can kind of rotate staff and give folks breaks from the high intensity of working in PPE all day long and um, having to try to connect the healthcare teams and the patients and the families. So it, it's a very challenging work environment. And I, I would say that, um, you know, you and I rely on our smartphone every day. I, I can guarantee you that you get up and you don't know what your day holds, <laughs> or maybe before you go to bed at night, you, you open up whatever calendaring app you use and see what your day's going to look like. Um, nurses and physicians show up at work and they have no control over how they're communicated with. They have no control over how it comes to them, when it comes to them or what the information is going to be. They just have to react in the moment. Um, and so that's why it's so important to take these tools that we have for our daily lives and figure out a way to make them work um, in, in this particular environment. And uh, I, I know I always say, we just assume because a smartphone designed the way it is works for us in our personal life that it would translate well to the healthcare environment, but it, it actually doesn't. You, you have to have some very thoughtful planning and thoughtful design uh, to make sure it functions as it should, which is why we frequently go back to the hands-free solution for clinicians because they need both of their hands caring for the patient. Yeah. And, you know, I guess, you know, speaking of COVID, how can healthcare organizations better protect frontline workers from COVID-19 itself? Yeah, we, um, right away, we recognized that um, PPE shortage was an issue. 
And uh, the primary issue, I remember talking to one nurse executive and she said, I'm having to go tell my nurses that it's a good idea to reuse a gown. She said when last year, that that would have been a, a, a reprimanding offense, right, right. you know, because we don't do that. And now I'm strolling down the hall saying, oh, no, this is a great idea. This is what we have to do. And so there has been, I, I don't want to be overly dramatic, but there has been this, this moral conflict for leaders trying to lead through when there's not enough beds, there's not enough supplies, and frankly, there's not going to be enough nurses. Um, so we try to uh, decongest the work environment. You know, it's like, can, can we use communication tools to streamline that so we can leave nurses in the PPE? It doesn't require multiple changes. We know that about 70% of the time when folks are exposed to a contagion, it's at doffing. It's when they're taking off their PPE. Um, so some hospitals have even created uh, doffing teams. So when a nurse or a clinician is ready to come out of their PPE, they call for the doffing team who come and help them remove um, those protective gears so they can um, they won't have exposure or re dramatically reduce their exposure to the virus. Um, so we immediately tried to help hospitals who didn't have room for beds, uh, uh, room for patients, and we're having to basically put patient beds in boardrooms and <laughs> in areas that had not been used for patients for a long time. So there was no way to call the nurse or call the physicians. And uh, so we were able to put one of our, our wearable badges onto the bed and just create a, a software workflow so the patient could talk directly to their nurses who also um, we're wearing the wearable under their gown. Um, they don't have to hold anything to their face. They don't have to continually clean between each and every action with the patient. Uh, they don't have to uh, wrestle around with the earpieces, uh, falling out and all of those sort of things. They can just uh, wear the badge around their neck underneath the PPE and have hands-free communication to be able to call for help whenever they need it. Those are the kinds of things that we've looked at. You know, it's a lot of times it's the, I call it the gnats around your ankles, you know, just the things that make it hard to do your job. So if we can make doing your job easier, then um, I, I think that we've done the right thing. And I do know that that is what everyone in this current environment is focused on. And obviously, you know, we just had the news, um, you know, when we're talking in, I guess early November and, you know, um, we just heard from Pfizer that, you know, they've got a yeah. vaccine that seems to be pretty effective. Um, and I think uh, Eli Lilly said they're, they're making progress. So, you know, there's some relief on the horizon eventually, um, you know, eventually we'll get this thing under control. Once that happens, what steps can organizations take to improve working conditions for frontline workers? Well, a couple of things. Um, you know, we've had events in our world that changed how we conduct ourselves forever, um, especially in healthcare when HIV/AIDS um, came into. I can remember working in the hospital, starting IVs, not wearing gloves. I, I worked wow. in labor and delivery. I can remember handling babies without gloves on <laughs> who had just been born. And, you know, 
HIV forever changed that basically people don't even take your blood pressure without putting gloves on. Right. Um, and, and then you look at 9-11. Um, I don't know if you were flying before 9-11, but to get on oh, yeah. an airplane, basically, you showed your boarding pass and you walked through and you got on the airplane. And now, of course, you know the, the routine that we go through to get on an airplane. Um, and, and it will never go back. So there's some things that are happening now that will never go back. Um, I, I fear that uh, we will never see our nurses or physicians' faces again. <laughs> um, I think that masks are here for a good long time. Um, I, I'm very excited to hear that we're making great progress with a vaccine and also with Eli Lilly's antibody test that, that we can um, our antigen tests, so we can definitely um, have some pro progress on what we're doing. But I, I think that we're going to be where we are for just a little while. Um, I think that wearing a mask and washing your hands and limiting your exposure is still what we have to do. And it, it, I, we're fatigued with it. We're all very, very tired of it. Um, but I think when we do go back to work, we're going to be more aware of closed in places. We're going to be more aware of washing our hands. I think that these are things that are now part of our culture um, and, and moving forward. And I think that uh, visitors and visitation in hospitals are going to require a, heavy, a higher level of screening uh, than we've seen before, uh, just those kind of things. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's a great example actually is, is sort of, you know, the ER and the waiting room and, mm -hmm. you know, what, you know, anybody can walk, you know, previously could walk in there and, and, you know, you don't know necessarily if they're carrying some right. kind of, you know, super germ. Right. Um, right. You know, I, I mean, yeah. do you think that that's something that, you know, uh, healthcare organizations will be a lot more, you know, uh, controlling about and just sort of, you know, Yes. a lot more surveillance and kind of you know yeah making sure that they're checking people before they even get in the in the waiting room yeah if you've gone to a clinic uh the last eight or nine months you know and they take your temperature um i went to buy some shampoo and they took my temperature <laughs> and and maybe use a hand sanitizer before i could handle any of the bottles in the store and um uh, asked me if i had been traveling if I tra traveled out of the state recently. So I, I think that those kind of screening questions are are here. I, I think we're all going to have to get used to that and hospital EDs are no exception. Um, I think that at some point we will probably to be able to travel outside the country, we'll have to show proof of vaccination just like um, for other illnesses or uh, blood-borne diseases that we've seen with mosquitoes and everything else. Um, I think that we definitely are going to see um, some changes in how we move about the world um, and definitely how we move about in healthcare. Well, Rhonda, I want to thank you for taking the time uh, to talk to me today. This was uh, really interesting and uh, let's hope that, uh, you know, these changes can uh, can take place and things will improve, uh, you know, for frontline workers as we uh, as we move along. That's always our goal. You know, I I look at the people who are doing this work for us and and quite literally they are the final barrier between us and this um, pandemic virus. 
we need to care for them and we need to provide the tools that they need to do their job well uh, and, and be patient with them because they're doing a very, very difficult thing, taking care of humans uh, while maintaining the humanity of it all. Um, and uh, I, for one, am deeply appreciative of everything that um, healthcare workers around the globe are doing right now to take care of all of us. And I appreciate the time to talk about it, Jay. Thank you. Thank you. That wraps up episode 22 of PSQH, the podcast. Thanks for listening and I hope to join me next time. I want to thank Full Sarah for sponsoring the episode. You can find more information about the podcast and listen to on-demand episodes on the show's page on psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. Thanks again, and stay safe.